how to live life on a journey to our true home, ever depending on God, ever yearning for our true home, the place of His presence, the place of His promises, the place where His people gather. And our psalm today, Psalm 133, uh, is a psalm that inspires and instructs us, really like this whole series, about a very important topic, the topic of unity. Something that's uh, spoken of right through the Bible. And it paints a glorious, beautiful picture of unity that stands really in stark contrast. Stark contrast to what we see around us. Our world is a divided world. Uh, people divide over all sorts of things. They divide in significant, tragic ways, neighbor against neighbor, country against country, church against church, even believer against believer. Uh, There's sad division in our world. We see it all around us. But in stark contrast is this beautiful psalm that that is there, uh, meaning, uh, I believe, meant by God to uh, inspire us, to instruct us, to offer an alternative, an, an, uh, an oasis, in contrast to the division of the world, the unity that God provides. So we're going to take some time this morning to look at this psalm, to learn from our God and His Word, and to benefit and grow as a result. So let's pray and ask God Himself to speak to us through His Word. Lord, we thank You for Psalm 133. We thank You that this is Your very Word. And Lord, it stands as Your Word Throughout all time, your word will last forever. Everything else will fade, but you and your word and those who live in you will endure forever with you. Thank you for your word and its truth. And we thank you, Lord, that not only does it stand as truth, but you want to speak to us this truth this morning. So, Lord, I ask you to come and do that. Would you help me to serve you? Would you help me to serve your people Would we hear from You from Psalm 133? And Lord, would we worship as a result? And would we be changed to walk in Your ways as a result as well? We look forward to what You'll do through Your Word. We thank You in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Psalm 133. It says, A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good... And pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Psalm 133. One through three. Three verses, a short psalm, but full of meaning, full of importance for us. This psalm conveys the importance and truths about unity, something we see throughout Scripture. It inspires us, it instructs us. If I had to put it in a sentence, if I had to put the psalm in a sentence, and and it's always hard to do that, it's helpful, I think, to do it, but hard because there's so many things going on in this psalm. It's a it's a poem, it's a Hebrew poem. There's there's pictures here, there's there's actually uh, rhyming of sorts in Hebrew. Uh, so it's hard to kind of just put it in a sentence. But if I had to, it is this that unity is beautiful and brings great blessing from God. 
Unity, God's unity, is beautiful and brings great blessing from God. Let us enjoy and preserve this precious gift. And that is more or less the outline of what I'm going to talk about this morning as we go through the psalm. We're going to talk about the beauty of unity. We're going to talk about the blessing of unity. We're going to talk about enjoying and preserving the gift of unity. The psalmist starts out saying, Behold how good and pleasant it is. He says, Behold. And behold is a word that you say when you encounter something really surprising or or exciting like, Behold, a hurricane comes. Did anyone say that when the hurricane was coming? No, we don't really use behold anymore, do we? We say things like, Whoa! Wow! Look at that! Uh, And that's essentially what behold is. Behold is maybe something they would have said a hundred years ago or more. Behold, the hurricane cometh. Might be how they would have said it a while back. Uh, But the psalmist starts by saying, Behold! Uh, It's meant to to captivate us. He's saying, I'm going to talk about something that's captivating. Check this out. Behold! Whoa! Look at this! Look at unity. Look at God's unity. Behold it! Unity is meant to be inspiring and impressive. Unity is meant to capture our attention. And it does actually. Ultimately, the unity that God gives us, and we'll talk about that, is meant to, above all things, uh, inspire us and impress us. But unity in the world does inspire and does impress us. There's lots of examples out there. As I was preparing uh, this past week, actually, I um, had looked at a video. I don't know if any of you have seen it uh, out there on on the Internet world. Uh, At Fenway Park's Disability Awareness Day, uh, there was a young man, an autistic man, who was asked to sing the national anthem. and he was a very courageous young man to do that and got up and started singing the anthem. And he got partway through. He started to kind of giggle and, and have trouble getting through. Uh, I mean, it's a national anthem, right? That's not the time when you want to do that. And it was an awkward moment. But it was really interesting what happened at that moment is, is the crowd actually giggled with him at first and then started singing the national anthem with him, helping him through. The whole crowd jumped in enthusiastically behind this young man, this courageous young man, dealing with his autism, yet still going and singing the national anthem. And the whole park sang the national anthem with him as he sung along. It was a wonderful moment of unity as they came together behind this young man spontaneously. We know other pictures of unity in the world as well. Ten years ago, coming up, 9-11. The unity in the tragedy of that horrible day The unity that we saw in response to it was impressive. The unity in New York City. Uh, New York City, known as a city where it's dog-eat-dog, every man for himself, people came together in courageous acts. People came together in kind and compassionate acts to reach out to one another, to care for the victims, to mourn together. That picture of unity is inspiring. It is impressive. So it's appropriate that the psalmist starts out saying, Behold, behold how good and how pleasant is unity. And it's not just run-of-the-mill unity as impressive as that is. It's the unity that God gives. He says how good and how pleasant it is. In the original language, the how is in front of both languages. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers come together in unity. 
This unity is good. And, and these are words that are close together in poetry. We, we often use words that are close together for emphasis, but also to bring some uh, understanding in that, in the differences. So how good is speaking of the, the, the nature of unity. Unity in and of itself, the reality of unity is a good thing. It's a good thing when brothers dwell together in unity. But it's also a pleasant thing. Pleasant is, is something that's good and has an effect on us. So one is really the objective aspect of unity. It is good. God's unity is good. How good it is and how pleasant. It, it, there's an effect on us. How pleasant it is. What a blessing it is to us. We, we experience the goodness of unity personally. So how good and how pleasant it is. He uses the word how to emphasize the degree. We say, how great is our God? We mean He's really great. He's very great. And and then we go on in that song to sing about what makes Him great. And the psalmist does that as well here. The psalmist starts out though saying, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. He's he's expressing just His excitement, His his, his, um, the effect of unity on His life. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. He's inspired and wants us to be inspired. God Himself wants us to be inspired and to be instructed through the Son. It says brothers dwell dwell in unity in the ESV. Some of the other translations say when brothers dwell together in unity or even just brothers dwell together. A a, uh, more literal reading of it uh, is actually from the Young's Little Translation. If you want to do Bible study, it's great to, to have the Young's Little Literal Translation. This was a translation done years ago, and it's very word for word, Hebrew or Greek, right to English. A little hard to read sometimes, but can be helpful. You can get that online. So as you study God's Word, it's a great place to go. Mr. Young renders it this way. Lo, how good and how pleasant the dwelling of brother, brethren even together. So it, it, it says... Even together, and, it, and the word even together means so together. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell so together. They're so together. They're unified. How good and how pleasant it is when, when they are so together, when they are, are so close. Now this psalm was written for people on a journey to Jerusalem. And as they journeyed at the feast times, they would come together, they would worship before God under His promises with His people. And as many as a million people would jam into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem was about 150 acres or so. So if you do the math, a million people in 150 acres, that's about a person every six square feet, if I have my calculations right. Every six, that's a lot of people close together. And, and, and certainly the psalmist, when he says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together, so together... I'm sure he's thinking of Jerusalem at those feast times when the people indeed were close together. But that's not what he means by unity. He's not saying unity is mere proximity. To be unified means that we're smushed close together. Uh, if that were the case, places like Manila, Hong Kong, and New York City, and the southwest part of the campus of UMass where I lived, which is the fourth densest place in the world uh, for population, would be the most unified place in the world. And those places aren't necessarily Unified, so it isn't it isn't physical proximity that he's speaking of when he says they're so together when they're in unity. It's a proximity of mind and heart. 
that he's speaking of. It's the proximity of understanding, theological and philosophical understanding, and and relational commitment. It's mind and heart. It's what they believed together, how they looked at life together, and how they were connected to one another relationally. Unity, true unity, is both an aspect of mind and heart proximity. And in our examples, that we saw that, right? The example at Fenway Park. These people were together. They felt together for this courageous young man. There was a, they had a, a relationship of sorts with him and with one another. And in their minds, they thought, well, the right thing now to do is to come and support him. They were agreed on that. Their minds and their hearts were together. They were together in unity and they sang together. 9-11 as well. The mindset and the hearts were together in our country. So unity involves these aspects. And for the Old Testament people of God, they had these elements to the max. They were together as God's people, instructed by God's truth, having experienced together God's deliverance. They were were of one father, one tribe, so they had ethnic unity, but that wasn't all. Um, They were were together uh, because they had been delivered from Egypt together. They were together in their deliverance. And then the covenant uh, that God made in Moses, through Moses, not in Moses, through Moses, there was a covenant. So He delivered them from Egypt and, and He poured out His grace on them. And then He said, now come and relate to Me in that grace and obedience and a heart for Me. So they were connected in covenant. And covenant is the most powerful relational connection you can have. A covenant is a solemn relationship one with another. So we talk about a marriage covenant. In Scripture, a covenant is a, is a solemn and serious commitment. It's, it's, a, it's the closest relationship you could have. And so these people, the Old Testament people of God, were in covenant before God, with God, together. They were bound together and they were under God's truth together, under His promises together. So there was that, that unity of mind and heart. And so when they came together in Jerusalem, that physical proximity was an expression of that philosophical, theological, and relational mind and heart proximity. So it was a wonderful moment as an Old Testament saint to be in Jerusalem and behold all the people together in the city. Uh, Cities in Scripture can be a wonderful thing when the people in the city are of God's. Um, The final city, there'll be a city in the end. We'll all be together. We'll be in close proximity. I love the country too, so don't get me wrong. I don't think Scripture says you shouldn't. But but there's a beauty of coming together and being together in the Lord. And and so the the psalmist is saying, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when, when these people are together, mind and heart, and in physical proximity as well. Well, these things, these reasons for unity are only intensified in the fulfillment of all the types and promises of the Old Testament. Christ came and Christ fulfilled all those covenants and, and all, those, all those types, all those promises we see. He's the ultimate Moses. He is the ultimate covenant Himself, actually. He is an embodiment of the covenant for He gave Himself to join His people, God, with His people. He came and fulfilled all righteousness. He came and lived the perfect life, fulfilled where everyone had failed before in His righteousness, then offered up His life 
for His people to die for your sins so that you, as you place your faith in Him and turn, you could be forgiven and and joined with God Himself in covenant through Christ. And so the, the covenant that we have now with God is, is in and through Christ. It's a covenant that's far more intimate, far more glorious than, than any of the covenants in the Old Testament. As wonderful as they were, they all pointed forward to Christ Himself. And Christ brings us together in covenant, in, in proximity to him and to one another, to God, the triune God, and, and, he, and we're, we together live in the truth of the gospel. Our minds are to be in close proximity in the truth of Christ, and we are to be in relational. We are in relational proximity together. So, so all, these, uh, all this wonder of unity in Psalm 133 for the psalmist at the time was only a taste of what we have in Christ and what will be ultimately fulfilled when he returns. It's a subject that we can spend a lot of time on together considering. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17 about this idea of our oneness. He says in John 17, The glory that you have given me, he's talking to his Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. Even as we are one. Who are the we? the Father and the Son and the Spirit implied as well, the triune God, even as we are one, God is one. There's no closer proximity than the oneness of God. He is together in three persons, but one together. And He has been one forever and will be one forever. And, and, And when we come to Christ, when we're joined in Christ, we are one with this eternal and perfect oneness of God. It may seem kind of deep and you may be thinking, okay, there's smoke coming out of our heads as we're trying to figure that out. Um, But there's no greater unity. There's no more perfect unity. And we are part of that unity in Christ. He goes on in the verse, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one in Christ. We could talk a lot about unity and there's a lot that Scripture says, but, but it is a wonderful unity that God creates in Christ. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And then the psalmist goes on in the next two verses to use similes, to, to use things where he says it is like something, to describe this unity, to describe just how good and how pleasant it is. He, he is filling out the picture for us by comparing it to two things. And these are the blessings that come with unity. There are tremendous blessings that are a part of unity. So the psalmist is seeing what unity is and how glorious and how beautiful it is. And he's saying it's like this. There are these aspects. There are these blessings with unity. And there's two things he compares it to. He links it to oil and dew. If you were going to write a poem, I don't know if you'd choose oil and dew to compare something to, would you? Um, this was a, a society that was um, different than us. It was a farming society. It was a society of, of, um, of old te- living under the Old Testament and the practices that were called for there. And oil 
uh, was important in general. All of this would have been olive oil that they're speaking of, but not just plain olive oil, special olive oil. It says, uh, it, it uses the word precious oil. Uh, it means the anointing oil. This was a special mix uh, that was based on olive oil, and then there would have been spices and perfume added to this. This was anointing oil. When this oil was used, you would smell it. You would see it pour over. If you were the subject receiving the anointing, you would, you would feel the oil on you. It was a statement that would have been made. There was a reality. There was a goodness in it. And there would be a pleasantness in it too because you would have smelt it. You would have seen it. You would have experienced it. This was a regular thing that was done. And then dew as well. These are two, two liquids. And, and I just thought, is there any equivalent in our society of of oil and dew, and I, I don't mean, it just doesn't cut it. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Gasoline and hair gel, I mean, there's just nothing, there's no, no liquids that, cut, that compare, are there? So forget the analogies. Uh, oil and dew. Um, and and we'll, we'll go in. We don't, we don't need to have analogies to understand. Scripture uh, teaches us, Scripture interprets Scripture for us so we can learn about it just through the Word. Well, the first thing, though, is it, it says that this unity is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. That this unity is like this, this anointing oil that comes down. And in both chap- uh, verse 2 and, chap- and verse 3, the, it uses the same word, basically descend. So it comes down, falls down, uh, but it's the same word in Hebrew. It's the, it's the word of descending. That, so there's this picture of the oil descending on the, from the head of Aaron going down on his beard onto the collars of his robe and it w- would have gone down onto his robe as well. Uh, Aaron would have been um, anointed with oil. Aaron was the high priest. He was the first high priest and he stands for really every high priest that follows after him. And high priests were anointed by God. Special people like prophets, priests and kings were anointed in the Old Testament. And the anointing was a sign of their being set apart for God, for the sake of God's glory and the sake of God's people. And so the high priest would have been anointed as a consecration to God. It was a setting apart of that high priest for God, for the sake of the people as well. See, the high priest, along with the priests, would offer sacrifices to God. The sacrifices were offered in the Old Testament system as, as a, um, to cover the sins of God's people. The reality is that God's a holy, glorious, perfect God. And if we're honest with ourselves, we are sinners who sin against a good and perfect God, who fail. And it is presumptuous for us to think we can come into God's presence. He's perfect. He's holy. He's infinite. There must be provision. And the Old Testament, that provision was, was seen through these sacrifices that the, the priests would offer where the blood of animals would be shed to cover the sins of God's people. And the high priest would, offer, would also represent the people in worship before God. He would stand on behalf of the people before God and in a sense be the one through whom the people were ushered into the presence of God. So his being consecrated, the high priest being consecrated, was a, a symbol, a remembrance of, of the fact that, that God's people are called to be set apart for God, to enter into relationship with God through, through sacrifice. That they are called to be close to the Lord. So his consecration, Aaron's consecration, really was the people of God's, Israel's consecration as well. Now that relates to unity here. 
What the psalmist is saying is that this wonderful unity that God brings, that God brings to His people, is a is a consecrating thing. That in this unity, God's people are set apart for God. That this isn't just mere proximity. This isn't people just agreeing together and and liking each other. This is God's people coming together and through this unity that God blesses them with, through the experience with them, they are brought near to God Himself. They are consecrated to God. That consecration to God and true unity go hand in hand together. Unity is good and pleasant because it's like the oil on Aaron, it's consecration to God. It's God coming near to us and dwelling with us. True unity means that God is near us and with us. That's what the psalm is teaching us. There's no greater blessing than to be close to God, to be consecrated, to have our sins atoned for, to, to be able to draw near. And we know these things are fulfilled in Christ Himself the ultimate high priest, who through His death and resurrection provides that we can be consecrated to the Lord and brought near. And if we are in Christ, we are brought near. The good news is today, no matter what your day has been like, if you are a believer in Christ and you have fundamentally turned from your sin, you don't want your sin, you want Christ, whether you've done well this week or not, you are brought near to the Lord in Christ. You are set apart. And to be brought together as His people is to be set apart. And how beautiful and blessed is the church that lives in unity. For a church like that is a church where God Himself dwells. Unity is not mere convenience for us as a church. Unity is not just about being able to get things done together. Not about just having a pleasant church to be a part of. Unity is about God's presence amidst His people. We are to enjoy and preserve unity because it is so closely related to God dwelling with us. How good and how pleasant it is when we dwell together. For God Himself is there. Such a group has been consecrated by God and set apart. And if you look throughout history at churches, people that have come together in Christ, times of revival, you'll see tremendous unity and you'll see the presence of God. Let me just read to you one example from uh, the first great awakening from Jonathan Edwards and his church. And and this is from uh, Faithful Narrative, his book on what went on. It's a wonderful read and I'm just going to abbreviate it. But he speaks of, of what was going on as God brought them together and visited them. I think we have it to show. It says, This work of God as it was carried on and the number of true saints multiplied soon made a glorious alteration in the town. The town seemed to be full of the presence of God. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Our public praises were then greatly enlivened. There has been scarce any part of divine worship wherein good men amongst us amongst us have had grace so drawn forth and their hearts so lifted up in the ways of God as in singing His praises. 
in all companies, on other days, on whatever occasions persons met together, Christ was to be heard of and seen in the midst of them. Our young people, when they met there, were wont to spend the time in talking of the excellency and dying love of Jesus Christ, the glory of the way of salvation, the wonderful, free, and sovereign grace of God. When God in so remarkable a manner took the work into His own hands, there was as much done in a day or two as at ordinary times is done in a year. What a wonderful picture of God's people unified around the Gospel and God visiting them with His presence. That's what the psalmist is speaking of. When God's people dwell together in unity, they experience the wonderful blessing of holy intimacy with God and all that comes with it. The psalmist goes on to compare the unity as well, saying it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. It is like the dew of Hermon that falls, which falls on the mountains of Zion. It is compared to dew. And again, another thing that we have to work a little bit to understand, we can look at the rest of Scripture, where dew is considered a great blessing. Dew is that stuff that you find on the grass in the morning. The wet stuff, right? And, and for most most of us, our experience of dew is getting our feet wet when we don't want to get our feet wet walking through the grass early in the morning. But for the people of God at this time, dew was a precious blessing. Jerusalem, it doesn't rain, it didn't rain, it doesn't rain much at all between April and October. Uh, they don't get much rain. But what they do get is they get a lot of temperature variations between night and day. It's not quite desert where you'll see like 40 degree differences, but, but they get a, about a 20 degree difference between night and day. And that cooling off at night means that there's condensation on the grass, on the plants, on different things. And for them, particularly ancient Jerusalem, ancient Israel, this was how their crops were watered. There was really no significant way for them to water their crops. And so the dew came down as a blessing every day, like a miracle from God that came to water their vegetation so they could take in the summer and fall harvests. It was a blessing. Now Mount Hermon was a mountain, is a mountain north of Jerusalem in, in the northern part of Israel. And it's, about, it's over 7,000 feet high. It has snow on top of it. It's the only ski area in modern Israel on top of Mount Hermon. And it is an area that is regularly well watered because of its altitude. So the dew of Hermon is, is an ever-present thing. It is, ever, it is ever wet and lush on Mount Hermon. So the, the psalmist is probably linking uh, the dew of Hermon uh, in the picture of that and the dew that falls on Zion together to, to give us a picture of this blessing, of this daily and regular watering from God. And so what the psalmist is saying is this unity, when brothers dwell together in unity, it, it is like the dew that falls on Mount Hermon. It is like the dew of Mount Hermon that falls on Zion. It is this blessing of refreshment. It is this blessing of refreshment and fruitfulness that flows from this dew. So unity is, is something that brings refreshment. It is something where God blesses us and He visits us with refreshment. It's refreshing to our souls. It nourishes us. There's fruitfulness that flows 
from unity. When God's people dwell together, when their hearts and minds are, are joined together, it's good and it's pleasant. It's, it's refreshing. It, it brings with us the presence of God. I want us to love unity. I want us to read this psalm and, and be stricken with the beauty of unity. I want us not to take it for granted. We're going to take some time as we go to talk about how to preserve it. But, but first and foremost, I want us to behold it and say how good and pleasant. And I want us as a church to not merely look at Psalm 133 and think about ancient Jerusalem, but to think about modern Jerusalem. And in some sense, this local church is part of the eventual new Jerusalem of all of God's people that He will build and, and finish but this is our Jerusalem of sorts here now as a local church. I want us to think about the beauty of unity and love it and enjoy it and treasure it. And we'll love it because it means that for us, as we live in unity, God Himself dwells with us. That's the best thing we could ever know. That's the best thing we could offer to anyone who walks in this door. That's the best thing we can ever offer to our community, to Greater Havel, is that God Himself dwells here. When we live in unity, He brings this blessing of His presence. And when people come and encounter us, they encounter God. Not because we're anything special, because He is a great God. And they will come, as 1 Corinthians 14 says, in our midst and say, surely God is in this place and be touched by Him. And we'll bring that presence with us as well. We talked about that the other week. But also I want to see us as we live in unity experience the, the refreshment and the fruitfulness that flows. Again, you can look through history and watch the church. The unified church is a fruitful church. You can just study the flow of history and watch as God visited His people with revival and there was unity around the Gospel. There were Good works. There was fruitfulness and refreshment that flowed. And so many things flowed out of these various revivals. Missions work. The birth of modern missions. The fruitfulness of modern missions. Reaching the world for Christ flows out of the unity, evangelism, different church movements and denominations that have been fruitful over the years. Church plantings, great universities, hospitals, social reform, advances in science. All these things have flowed from God's people as they've been unified around the Gospel. There's this dew that comes, this blessing of God of refreshment and life and fruitfulness that comes with unity. Elie Halevi, a French historian, actually said that England avoided revolution back in the day when the other European nations were going through revolution, 1700s, 1800s. England avoided revolution through the, the work of the Methodists and really the, the Christians in England. They affected a whole nation. As the people of God of various denominations, not just Methodists, came together and walked in the truths of the Gospel together, the dew of Hermon came on England through their lives. It altered the politics of a whole nation and through that, the whole world. I'm not an Anglophile. I'm not trying to say that, but but I just want you to know that that God came and blessed a nation and a world through that. The dew of Hermon comes when God's people are together. And and I look for us as a local church, as we, in our small part in what God's doing, which is a glorious part, as we come together and live in unity to watch God bring refreshments, to watch God bring fruitfulness, 
in our lives and through our lives. There's just so many things I'm, I'm looking for the Lord to do as He brings unity. So much fruitfulness I'm looking for and excited about. And we'll get to talk about that in our family meeting uh, on the 18th. Sorry to keep you in suspense, but there's a lot of different things. One thing I'm praying for God to bring us together in and, and lead us forward in His provision is for our building. And, and there's an update in the bulletin. Uh, God has given us this building that served us so well. We have a great asking price. But there are some giants in the land that we're looking at with our building, just to let you know. There's some serious maintenance issues that we have to address before we finalize our purchase. And we can, we're going to walk through this wisely. We're going to seek the Lord. But ultimately, I want to see the Lord work in us. And he may say, no, go somewhere else. But I don't think that's what he's going to say. What I'm asking for him to do is to grant us a unity that the dew of Hermon would come, there'd be a fruitfulness, and we rise up together and say, Lord, this is what you're calling us to. Let's walk in it. And we give ourselves our time and our resources for what God's doing through this church that is housed in this wonderful building. That's just my heart. I don't know for sure what the Lord's doing, but I know when we come together, God will visit us. He'll pour out refreshment. He'll give us fruitfulness. He may redirect us. I'm I'm open to that. But let us walk together in this unity and watch Him be fruitful through us. One more part of the psalm. I'll try to move quickly. Unity is beautiful. It brings great blessing from God. Let us enjoy and preserve this precious gift. Unity is a gift. It's a gift from God. It's not something we create. We do not create God's unity. It's a gift. In this psalm, it uses the word descend or comes down or falls down. That's a word where something falls down. It descends. It descends from above. The implication is that unity is a blessing from God. At the end of the psalm, it says there, there where there is unity, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Ultimately, unity is a blessing from God. It's a gift from God. Scripture doesn't say, doesn't say you need to create unity. Unity comes from God. God is the one who has brought us together in Christ. God is the one who's worked in your life and given you faith to believe and, and joined you with Christ and called you to a local church. He's the one who's created unity. Unity already exists in Christ. It's a gift from Him. So Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because there is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The unity of God's people is an established fact in Jesus Christ. It already exists. It's there. It is a reality. Now, how we live in it will affect our experience of it. It is a good thing. It may not be a pleasant thing for us if we don't maintain and walk in it. We can work against unity. But unity is already given in Christ. Under the truth of the Gospel, through our covenant, our joining with Christ together, we have minds and hearts. If you're a believer, you have a mind and a heart that's joined with other believers and and called particularly to do that within a local church, within a particular church. That unity already exists. And so we're called to maintain it to preserve it. It's a gift from God, but from Him. He is the one who does it. He is the one who loves unity. He is eager to see us walk in this unity together. 
And when we do it, He commands the blessing of, of life forevermore. He, he commands a blessing to us in that place. The, the experience of life, this life that's eternal life in Him. We are to enjoy it and preserve it. So let's just in closing think about how to do that. How to enjoy and preserve it. We can stray from true unity. We can stray from true unity and we do that first and foremost when we stray from the Gospel. When we stray from Christ. Christ's death and resurrection. His His return, His present reign and return are also part of the Gospel. There's other aspects of the Gospel. When we stray from the Gospel, we stray from unity. Unity cannot be created in the Lord without the centrality of the Gospel. Spurgeon said that unity in error is unity in ruins. The Gospel is our central part of our unity. The good news of Christ. It's what creates our unity. It's what sustains our unity. It's what instructs our hearts and gives us power to walk in our unity. Your ability to experience true unity with others comes as a fruit of the Gospel. If you do not, if we do not center on the Gospel, we will stray from unity. And it will only be a pretend unity. Only the Gospel gives us power to... to, to Live out unity. First, the, the effect of the Gospel in, in what it means for our salvation and belonging to Christ. That's the first and foremost truth of how the Gospel creates unity. But it also functions in our lives to give us hearts, to shape our hearts, to shape our minds, to love and preserve unity. The only thing that gives you the ability to humble yourself before others the only thing that gives you the ability to truly love others that are not like you is the Gospel, the good news of Christ, in it that Christ has loved you when you were not lovable. He has given Himself for you, for me. He loves us that much. And in that truth, we can begin to be humble and love each other and be joined together in mind and in heart. Keeping the Gospel central is the primary point of preserving unity. Also, I think living in gratitude. There's, there's probably 20 or more things that, that will help preserve unity we could think of from the Scriptures. These are, these are based on scriptural truths, but just thoughts, ways to apply these truths. Living with gratitude. A life of gratitude stands in contrast in Scripture to a life of complaining and discontent and discord or disunity. We're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians, a letter to the, I mean, the Philippians. And this is a great epistle on unity. Paul says, And it do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. And then later, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul is seeking to address the disunity in Philippi and he's saying, Guys, learn to live. In gratitude, not in complaining and grumbling, but gratitude. Learning to live in rejoicing. When we live in gratitude, when we're more aware of what we have that we don't deserve, when we're more aware of God's great love for us who are undeserving sinners, when we're more aware of His grace all around us than anything else, it changes our hearts. And we're joined together and the barriers are taken down so we don't look at our brother or sister thinking, they're really kind of weird and different than I am. We're thinking... God has been so good to me. And there's gifts in this person. 
that, that are brought to this church and we're together. It changes our orientation and it brings us together. The grateful believer is a happy believer. And the happy believer is glad to be part of his or her church, glad to be rescued from sin, glad to know grace and mercy, glad to have precious friends in the church, glad to be counted among God's elect, and glad to enjoy true unity with God's people. How would you rate yourself in gratitude? Are you, are you glad to be joined with God's people, with the Lord and with His people? Are you glad to know grace and fathomless mercy? Are you regularly rehearsing the truths of the gospel to increase your gratitude? Our neglect during the week of the gospel has an impact on us on Sunday and on our life in the church. And I'm not trying to guilt you into doing this. There's wonderful benefits. There's, there's wonderful blessing that God holds forth for us in creating lives of gratitude and joy and the unity that flows and then all that stuff that flows from unity. So, live with gratitude. If the band could come up as we close. Final point, live to give. Live to give. Live to love others. Live to give to others. Live so affected by the gospel that your orientation and the power of the gospel is to give, not to simply receive, to offer yourself to others, to offer yourself to the work of a local church. Live to give. Live in the gospel to give to others. Rather than sitting around waiting to receive, that's not a good orientation for us. I want you guys to receive. Don't get me wrong. But if, if we're not being affected by the truth of the gospel and learning to to give, we will, we will be evaluating everything by what we receive or don't receive. Unity comes as we live to give. Listen to what Francis Schaeffer says of this and about disunity. He says, I have observed one thing among true Christians in their differences in many countries. What divides and severs true Christian groups and Christians, what leaves a bitterness that can last for 20, 30, 40 years or for 50 or 60 years, and a son's or daughter's memory is not the issue of doctrine or belief that causes differences in the first place, as important as those might be. Invariably, it is a lack of love and the bitter things that are said by true Christians in the midst of differences. When there's a lack of love and there's some difference that comes up, there's division. When there's love and differences, we work through them. And most differences, if they're not gospel differences, can be dealt with. It doesn't matter whether the chairs are blue or maroon. It really doesn't. Um, It doesn't matter, you know, what building we're in. Those things don't matter. And when we love each other in the gospel, we'll deal with those disciplines and get through it for the glory of God. We live to give in the power of the gospel. We see the fruit of unity. There's no place on earth sweeter than to be with a local church, to be with a church dependent on Christ, living in the Gospel, full of love for one another, full of the presence of God, full of fruitfulness and refreshment. Have you known the sweetness of unity? Psalm 133 presents a picture to us of the beauty of unity. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Let's pray.